IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest IB Talk. I'm Paul Lucas, IB's managing editor, and here's my question of the day. Just how tech savvy are you? Well, you're listening to a podcast, so that's a good start. But how deep is your understanding of some of the terms that are bandied around industry conferences and talks with great frequency these days? I'm talking about terms like insure tech, legacy systems, AI strategies, and digital processes. It all sounds very 21st century, doesn't it? Except, yes, we are are in the 21st century. Uh, But if you're not up to speed with these no longer futuristic but very much present day terms, then today is your chance to play catch up. That's because we have an expert on all things technological in insurance joining us today. That man is Craig Weber, insurance practice leader at Cognizant. Uh, Craig, welcome to YB Talk. Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, So, Craig, we're going to dive into all things technological shortly. Um, But first of all, tell us how you got into the industry, because uh, you got your start at John Hancock, I believe. Yes, that's right. And I I think I have maybe what is a a typical story, at least I've heard, you know, variants of this from from some of my colleagues. It was all rather accidental. Um, And I was in grad school in Boston and um, working... um, or going to school right up the street from John Hancock, and I think I looked around and said, "Gee, where's where's there a place where I can, you know, kind of get a little part time work in while I'm in grad school?" And there it was. And I, I literally walked in the door there, and they pointed me to the HR office and said, "Oh yes, we we accept people to uh, walk in here and apply." And so I ended up working there uh, part time while I was in grad school, and one thing led to another, and and I ended up staying there for uh, a little bit over eleven years. Wow, amazing story. And, and technology was, was a focus for you very early on as well. So, so what sort of led to that being your niche? I, I think it, it wasn't the, the draw of technology um, exactly, although I, I, I enjoy technology. It was really for me more about problem solving. Um, and you know, I, I saw the insurance industry having a, a set of problems that, that were um, you know, fairly well well known, uh, but really kind of slow in resolving. And I just took a lot of a lot of uh, pride and interest in solving problems for people. That just kind of was was my early career. Uh, for John Hancock, I was a consultant uh, doing a lot of technology implementation and process improvement and some strategy work. And the common theme across all of those was, you know, here's a problem. We've had this problem for a long time. What do we do? And I just always enjoyed suggesting, you know, solutions to problems. And then at the end of it, you step back and you look at it and you say, "Wow, that's that's an improved bit of the world right there." And uh, that that feels very good to me. I'd love to know as well what sort of problems were you dealing with on on the technological front at, at that stage of your career? Because I'm imagining they might be quite different to now. Yes and no. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I think some of those early year lessons that I learned about uh, data quality and scale and you know large scale transformation projects, some of those have have really um, kind of come forward in my career, and and we still are doing some of the same sorts of things. Now the tool set has has radically improved. And I like to say we are in the golden age for insurance technology. 
So I, I'm trying to think what we will say when we look back on this, you know, several decades from now. I'm, I'm thinking we will say we were in the golden age of insurance technology because finally technology has caught up to the problems uh, on some level. And that can be things like uh, certainly cloud computing and um you know, uh, AI and, and rules-based processing and machine learning and all these kind of newish technologies that have, have come up. I think, um, you know, today um, we are solving the same problems we were 30 years ago, but with a much, much uh, richer tool set. And that, that's exciting. Well, we'll come to this uh, golden age in, in just a minute. But um, as we continue to sort of just pan through your career, you moved from John Hancock, and then you, you ran a, a US-based startup called Building to Investments. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that firm and, and, and what its goals were. Building Two was, was a company um, run by um, some, some guys who, some, some expats, um, US expats in Japan, and they had some success with some technology businesses and decided to help other primarily U.S. businesses who wanted to do uh, Japanese market entry. So what we did was we, we created a research firm that was looking at technology and also uh, kind of broader issues like HR strategy for market entry into Japan. And the reason I, I sort of laugh when I say that is this is sort of a precursor to my career as an analyst. Um, you know, we were producing research and talking to, to, to businesses about what they needed to do in Japan. So it's a very specific focus, but looking back, it was, it was quite a natural step from there to my next role, which was as a, an industry analyst doing very, very similar work. So it's amazing how things tie together. I don't think, again, that's maybe a little bit accidental how that happens, but um, in hindsight, it, it all sort of plays out in a line. What did you learn from from that experience? Because I, I'm imagining, you know, the the Japanese market is, is is quite unique, and it must be very very different. So when you you move across, you know, back to the states and so on, that could be quite a transformation. Or, or were the sort of lessons that you you could take from from that role into the next job? I think one of the ahas for me was that the problems that everybody faces uh, across geos are not all that different. And so, yes, there were some pretty big cultural differences and you know, things to know about, about Japanese culture that I had to learn. But um, I, I will say, you know, most, most of the problems relate to uh, being effective and having the right strategy and hiring the right people. And so, you know, I, that, that was a theme that, that played out really across my career until today. Um, you know, I think we sometimes we make a little too much of, of the cultural differences and forget that, you know, business is business and people are all trying to achieve their goals and leveraging technology, certainly in, in my field of work, which is primarily around insurance um, for my entire career, you know, that, that, that's a theme. Uh, tech, how technology plays out in insurance is the same, whether it's in Europe or the United States or Canada or Japan. And so that's, you know, I think, I think we, we kind of tie ourselves up in knots trying to make things complicated. They're not necessarily as complicated as we think. 
Well, you then spent 16 years at Sellant um, and, and held a, a couple of other roles before moving into your, your current position now. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you do now and, and how the firm services the insurance industry. Well, Cognizant is um, has been a, a, a around as, as a client and as, as a service firm for my, my clients when I was with Sellant. So I've, I've been long familiar with the firm um, and you know, it has has a lot of different elements. I think the the one amazing, eye opening thing to me now that I'm inside Cognizant is how big Cognizant is and the scale at which Cognizant works. And so, Cognizant has traditional IT services uh, sort of offering, and that's I think where the firm really cut its teeth, um, you know, twenty plus years ago. Uh, but we've also now expanded well beyond that to. Uh, cloud transformation and AI and applications of of you know different emerging tech. Uh, we have a, a great insurtech uh, e- ecosystem that we have built out and have relationships with a lot of players around uh, a lot of different you know functional areas within insurance. So that's that's the interesting thing. What what really brought me to Cognizant is how broad the offering is and how interesting really every day can be something different. Well, of course, you, you talked earlier about this sort of golden age of insurance technology. And, and tell me, was this, was this age sort of born from a, a dark cloud, so to speak? You know, it has this been prompted by the, the sort of the spate of, of recent natural disaster events and, and of course, COVID as well. Um, is that impacting legacy insurers? Oh yeah, it, it has changed the way we think as an industry pretty significantly, and you know I I think um, it's it's always good to have a reason to change your thinking, right? It it's easy to sort of ride the soft and slow change wagon, <laughs> but when something happens, say COVID uh, or natural disasters uh, or nine eleven, these are big seminal events in the industry that really got people thinking. I, there's a quote from uh, CEO of, of Microsoft, something along the lines of, we've had three years of transformation in the last three months. And I, I think that's really true. Uh, the industry sort of had to wake up to what was going on and, and react. Really, not not just insurance. Every industry had to do the same thing to, when COVID crashed upon our shores. We had to decide, were we going to stop working or were we going to keep going and find a way to make it work? And I think everyone chose the latter. Um, So the fact that that the world is working from home, um, that, um, you know, we've got a a big um, opportunity actually to to leverage some of that energy into really productive change. And that's, that's, also, it's a terrible thing is what has happened to us across the globe, but also there is an upside, and that is it, it woke us up to different ways to think about technology. Well, tell us about how this is, is manifesting in the insurance industry, how those sort of legacy insurers are, are being impacted, because obviously I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to this has, has been impacted in some way, at least by the, the switch to, to more remote work and so on. But is there anything that's a little bit more, I guess, focused in on the insurance industry? Well, a lot of insurance work relates to understanding risk. And so as as new risks show up, um, it, it obviously 
puts a little pressure on the industry to rethink how it has arrived at some of those risk decisions. And in, in COVID, we'll take the COVID example, um, you know, there, there's all kinds of aspects across every insurance line. Certainly in the life insurance business, there was an impact from COVID. We were not thinking actuarially about a global pandemic, at least not, um, you know, I would say very specifically. And so all of a sudden people had to underwrite business differently and they had to think about life expectancy differently. Um, we had all kinds of data inputs, including uh, very sensitive data like medical tests uh, and doctor information that, you know, somehow we have to wrap that into how we are processing insurance. And I think gradually over the past 18 months, insurers have, have really, you know, come around to that. Um, at the same time, all the work from home, there's, there's an increased uh, cyber uh, security uh, threat uh, surface, and that, that has really been something for the whole industry to deal with. Um, you know, there's other, other kinds of things like wildfires and hurricanes and heat waves, and they, they often, I think, manifest themselves in new technology like IoT, the Internet of Things. You know, there's a there's a reason why there are so many sensors in the world, and why insurers are doing so much work around capturing that data and building it into their risk and analytics. Um, that's it's really game changing. Yeah, and I think when we speak about game changing, of course, we have to look at the the sort of the, the emergence of the insure tech startups, and um, I think when they originally sort of burst onto the scene a lot of them were seen as a, a threat to the insurance industry, but that seems to have transitioned over time. And, and now a lot of insure techs are, are more sort of seen as providing solutions to, to the existing insurers. So just tell me from, from your perspective, what can the, the traditional insurance organizations learn from these you know, more popular startups? Yeah, first of all, I think you're exactly right about that, that threat dynamic. Um, it, insurers... I think traditionally we're a little more insular in their thinking. And they said, okay, we do something special that no one else does and we do it at scale and at, at a level of complexity that really truly is daunting. Um, so they were not necessarily out of the gate excited about insurtechs popping up and, you know, three people working in a garage somewhere, how are they going to solve my problems? <laughs> that seemed to be the attitude. Uh, but that, thankfully that has shifted. And I think most large insurers now are looking at insurtechs in a couple of different um, useful, uh, you know, making use of them in, in, in a couple different ways. One is exploring new tech. And so um, insurtechs, which are not constrained in their thinking about what technology can do and what problems it can solve and how it can work, um, I think they are making really exciting advances in applications of technology. Now, you have to temper that a little bit with the reality of what insurance actually is. And I can't tell you how many insurtechs I've talked to had really neat technology ideas. But when you ask them, okay, so where does this fit in the insurance world? And they can't quite tell you because they don't understand the insurance world, maybe. And so, you know, that, that dynamic is improving as well. The insurtechs are moving toward the insurers while the insurers are moving toward the insurtechs. And I think that's a much, much healthier place. Um, the other way I think insurers are thinking about this right is, is partnering and building out the ecosystem. I mentioned that earlier. 
Um, InsureTechs, by their nature, are they tend to be more data-driven. They tend to be more open in, in how they are giving access to functionality. And that is quite a shift from the traditional core system approach of being sort of walled off and insular and end-to-end -end within the enterprise. And so that's, that's a very helpful shift uh, that, that we see going on in the industry. Well, tell us a little bit then, if, if InsureTechs are, are perhaps not so much a, a threat as they were previously, um, or at least were perceived to be previously, uh, what would you say then are the, the ramifications, if you want, for, for companies that sort of continue to exist in a legacy environment and don't adopt some of these digital transformation processes? Are they simply going to be left behind? Yeah, I think the short answer is they they risk being left behind, and there's there's really two paths forward that that could cause that. Uh, one is there are a lot of insurers who are spending a lot of time with insurtechs, and some of them are investors. Actually, many of them are investors now, and so with their own money in the game, that also changes how insurers think about insurtechs. Right? They're going to be much more open to ideas and much more inclined to try things and, and get value out of the insurtechs that they've invested in. The other path that could lead to disaster for an insurer that is not careful is outside entrance to the market coming into the insurance space. And while there are regulatory constraints and there are things that hold back outside entities from entering insurance, there are also very deep-pocketed uh, players who are, are taking a hard look at insurance because it exists uh, at the intersection of, of a very clear customer need and a, a very um, rich source of data. And so I think a lot of outside players are, are looking at insurance and saying, gee, I think we could maybe make a run at this. And they might end up, might end up buying an insurer to get into the, the licensing and you know on the regulatory side. And they have a lot to learn maybe about reserving and other topics that insurers are really good at. But outside players are thinking much more critically about how insurance needs can be, can be met and how the nature of risk can, can be addressed uh, uniquely using data. I think we've sort of set the scene here in terms of the the need to be to be thinking digitally. But tell us a little bit about how we actually put this into practice. How can insurance providers start to to, to build a, a, a business wide strategy that focuses in on, on digital and and maybe let's make it more specific than that. Maybe that that actually focuses in on, on artificial intelligence because that's that's a buzzword that we hear sort of dominating uh, around the industry right now. Um, but I'm guessing there's a lot of people who just wouldn't know where to begin. Yeah, I think the the common thread, whether you call it you know digital transformation or or AI and machine learning, um, is starting with data and really understanding your data and having a a a very clean. Um, set of data to work with. And that's that's a challenge, right? In, in the insurance world, uh, particularly large insurers, they have so many applications uh, and core systems. And depending on the line of business, they can have a long, long tail on, on, on their customer relationships. And that really stresses uh, their ability to, to have good, clean data. But getting the data story straight is an important absolutely critical first step. So that's that's a good place to start. I would say the other thing is 
um, building the right skill set to to leverage new technology and new ways of thinking. And that's not only you know adding uh, in-house capability like data scientists and data architects, but also in terms of vendor management. I think there's a, a real skill to managing the vendors uh, and relationships and maybe thinking a little more creatively uh, than historically insurers have about how partnerships are arranged and how all partners can get value. So I think those those are two really good starting points um, for for insurers that want to extend into into digital and, and AI. And of course, um, for for those who aren't sort of used to dealing with this area, for for the legacy insurers and so on, I, I'm guessing there are quite a few pitfalls to to potentially trying to to digitize um, those those manual business processes. So can you perhaps talk us through some of the the common missteps and and, and how they can be put right? Yeah, this is this is an emerging. Uh, uh, area of, of study, I think, uh, because now we have enough experience to know what happens when a legacy insurer, you know, tries to 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 undergo digital transformation. I would say one thing that that we see is insurers uh, occasionally not going big enough. You know, I think it's 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 tempting to nibble at this apple. And just try to take little bites, little controlled bites here and there. But what what that leaves you with um, over time, I think, is a brown and partially eaten apple. <laughs> and in, in the insurance world, that you know, it's it's like adding another layer of complexity to an already complex environment. So I I know the 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 fashion right now is to um, stay agile, to fail fast, to you know, go into experimental mode. And I do agree with that as a starting point, but I think philosophically not going big enough is as big a danger um, as, as, as is going too fast. So I think that's, that's a balancing act. Um, I think the other thing that, that insurers um, need to challenge themselves on is the principles of user-based design. If you think like like a process improver, and I, I kind of take myself back to my early career, you know, we were improving process one little bit at a time and hoping to get a percent here and a percent there and adding it all up and getting 15%. Okay, that's great. You know, everybody will take a 15% uh, expense improvement, for example. But I think what that fails to do is it fails to take into account how people are living their lives outside of insurance and how they think. And so really taking a, a, a view of the end customer and the kind of simplicity and ease that they are looking for, uh, that's that's another recipe for disaster. Yeah, very interesting. And, and of course, there are, as, as we talked about, there has been such an influx um, to the market of, of sort of tech, tech companies and, and uh, tech solutions and so on. So when uh, insurers are attempting to, to evaluate the, the viability of all these different AI tools and processes, I mean, what should they be looking for? Yeah, I think the first stumbling block is 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 again that data cleanliness. It's, it's hard to make any progress if you don't have ready access to data. So in particular, when you're talking about AI, um, you know, we're, we're, we refer to AI as action and insight. It's, it's decision-making that relates to action. It's things that you, you do. Um, it's hard to do unless you have really 
high confidence in the data uh, quality that you have, and you can, uh, for example, um, hyper-personalize experience based on user data. But we're talking millions. In, in, in the case of a large insurer, we're talking about millions of insurers with many millions of transactions and interactions um, over, over the course of a policyholder's life. And so it's really hard to, to understand those trends and, and deal with them effectively if you don't have great data. Um, I, I think it's also important for insurers to plug these solutions in at the right level. And by that, I mean, um, again, there's, there's systems of record, uh, but there are also kind of the transactional systems and the servicing, uh, like the call center systems. And so understanding where to apply AI to greatest effect, um, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah, and I, I think Craig, that you've obviously done a, a, a great job today of sort of setting setting us on the, on the right road on this subject. But of course, we also want to try and be ahead of of, of the customers' needs, of of the market's needs. How is that possible? How can we do it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a process, right? It, it's it, this is this is a journey, and it takes time. Uh, but I think. The most important thing, and maybe this is a lesson from from the InsureTechs too, um, is to start by building the right team and maybe not lock yourself into a mindset. So when what we see with the InsureTechs very often, all, all the, the the ones that have really gone stratospheric um, in in their businesses. Um, if you track them back, they almost always started doing something else <laughs> than what they ended up doing. And the reason for that, it's it's not bad strategy. It's kind of following the ball where it bounces. And sometimes things will, will come up and surprise you. So most of these businesses start with a good idea and a good good bit of technology, and then they, they end up, you know, tracking that to, to someplace else. And so I, I think that kind of mindset and retaining some of that flexibility uh, is really important for insurers. I think it's also really important for them to bring in outside perspective. I was working with with an insure tech um, that was working with an insurer and what they said that the primary value as I talked to the CIO at the insurer was was not the technology. It was not the um, kind of the, the business process shift that that came in, it was the mental shift. It was the fact that he, he said something like, my team had to up their clock speed to keep up with this intratech. And we had to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that is, you know, really an outsider perspective is really helpful to do that sort of thing. Yeah, it's something that I've I've heard many times before. The, the, the need for the industry to sort of get those uh, perspectives from 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 elsewhere, and and, and even to, to bring um, some more people into the industry that that have um, you know different backgrounds and so on. But um, I want to switch things up a, a little bit with you now, Craig, and and, and move from um, I guess the, the the futuristic technological world um, into the the classic classical world world because you're um, on the board of directors um, for the Mozart Festival Tech. Uh, tell us what that involves. Yeah, Mozart Festival Texas is a, a small arts organization uh, dedicated to producing classical music in the dead of summer, which uh, in Texas is a very hot and, and barren time for classical music. 
So we built this midsummer music festival focused on Mozart and, and his contemporaries. And really, it's, it's, it's just a, a, a passion project of sorts uh, because uh, my wife is a, a classical musician, and so she and I have decided to, to try to help build this, this arts organization out. So have you always been a fan of, of classical music? Uh, I, you know, I, I have always enjoyed classical music, and I, I kind of grew up in a musical family. But um, when I met my wife, she's a violinist, and so that really ratcheted things up to a different level. Since I met her, I've, I've been to literally hundreds of concerts, and, and so I, I have to say I'm much more of a classical music fan today than I was uh, 30 years ago. So for anybody who is perhaps uh, not too versed in the, in the classical scene, what piece would you recommend to someone who's, who's sort of looking to give it a try? You know, it's so individualistic, and, and I, I kind of make fun of myself this way. I, I like big, brassy Russian sounds, so Tchaikovsky, anything by, by Tchaikovsky is good for me. Um, if you want something a little more ethereal, uh, a little more intellectually challenging uh, i would say mozart you can't go wrong with um you know it's it's there's an art to patiently processing classical music that i've had to work on i'm it's i'm a work in progress i i still sit at concerts sometimes and my mind kind of wanders and at first i thought gee that's a bad thing and then i thought no maybe that's actually like the right <laughs> way to process music you you kind of go where your brain takes you as you listen and so I, I would say everybody should just experiment with several different styles and find out what resonates. Yeah, fantastic. Craig, it, it, it's been great to have you with us. I think you've broken down some tech barriers and, and, and maybe some musical barriers too. Um, if anybody wants to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, how can they get in touch? Um, best place to reach me is, is my Cognizant email, craig.weber with one B at cognizant.com. Craig, it's, it's been great to have you join us. Uh, my huge thanks to you. Uh, and to everybody listening, we'll talk to you again next time here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.